on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again. My name is Jason Drury and welcome to part two of a Cinematic Sound Radio Network interview special on film and TV composer Dr. Robert Falk. During the first part of the interview, which took place via Zoom in February 2021, we talked about how folk got into film and TV music, working on the numerous sequels the composer was scored, and how he came about working on the Police Academy series of films. In part two, we talk about, amongst other things, his work on films such as Ace Ventura when Nature Calls and Verbi Dragons, his collaboration with directors, and what he is working on at present. Also, as in part one of this special, you'll be hearing more of the wonderful and at times exciting music that this legendary composer has created during his illustrious career. Were you considered for scoring the James Bond film Goldeneye? That is correct. That is very correct. And the way that came about was that a bunch of my music was temp-tracked into Goldeneye by a very famous uh, British film editor who you probably may have met over the years named Terry Rawlings, just a giant in the industry and an incredible guy. And I had never met him, but he had temp tracked probably 30 or 40 minutes of my music into Goldeneye. And that's how Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson and that team, um, Malcolm Campbell, the director, became aware of me. So as it turns out, I was in London recording at Abbey Road, a big orchestral score, and I'm not sure which one it was, I guess if I if I checked IMDb and looked at the dates for Goldeneye and what I was doing around that time, I ended up over there just when all this was happening with, with them temping my music. So Barbara came over to a session of mine, and that's when I first met her. And she said, look, I'd like to pick you up when you're done with this recording in a week or so and bring you out to our shooting stage at the old Pinewood, where they were working at the time. A week later, she pulls up in a Rolls Royce at my hotel in London and drives me out there to meet Martin Campbell. Got a chance to spend a couple of days on their set. My manager, uh, Larry Marks, was with me for that trip. He knew Barbara very well from previous work with her. So we all had a good time together. And when I headed back to the United States, when I was finished with that work, we were all set to score Goldeneye. We were very excited. And about a week after I got home, I got this phone call from my manager. And he said, I've got really not good news for you. I've just heard from Barbara Broccoli. 
And one of her attorneys brought her a contract which said that the gentleman who scored or the lady or gentleman who scores GoldenEye must be affiliated with Virgin Records because we have an overall score and soundtrack deal underneath that contract. And so therefore, Mr. Folk, you're not going to be scoring GoldenEye after all. So that was not a good day for me, as you can imagine. So that's when I first heard about Eric Serra, who is a virgin art recording artist, or was at the time, maybe he still is, that he would be scoring the film. We did get a subsequent call about six weeks later, another inquiry. We're missing that big orchestral bond sound. What is your schedule like? You know, this sort of conversation. But in the end, the, the whole virgin artist contract prevailed. And that was such a missed opportunity. I would have, I'm a big James Bond film freak. And I was actually very close with John Barry and knew him for a long time. He helped my career a lot. There, there were a number of films that he was invited to do that he didn't have time to do that, that he introduced me on. And so it would have been one of life's biggest pleasures to join that club of composers that have written for James Bond, but it didn't go that way in that case, you know, much to my disappointment. You know, probably like most composers, this has happened to me on a number of occasions, these sort of things. After scoring Tremors, my contribution to Tremors, Ron Underwood hired me in principle to score City Slickers, his very next movie. And again, about a week later, even after signing a deal memo, et cetera, et cetera, I get a call from Ron Underwood and um, Rob, I'm really sorry, but Billy Crystal, the star of our movie and a very influential person on this movie has a composer who has been his music director for many years. And that young gentleman's name is Mark Shaman. And Mark Shaman is going to be writing the score for City Slickers. It happens. I'm sure it's happened to just about every composer that's ever written film music, you know? Now, one of my favorite scores of yours is another of your scores for sequels. The 1995 Gene Carey starring comedy Ace Ventura and Nature Calls which I feel has a sequent agent vibe in the music. What are your memories working on that film? Well, that was a, a real fun, fun movie to work on. Because the first Ace Ventura had been successful at the box office, we all assumed that it would be a really significant worldwide hit, which it, it did become. It did a tremendous amount of box office worldwide. So with that... The production company, Morgan Creek and also Warner Brothers, they really gave us free reign with the budget. So we really, we had the best, everything that you could want. I, I had a, about 98 players uh, in the orchestra on the, on the Sony stage. And we had Dennis Sands, who's, who's a brilliant engineer, especially for that kind of score. Because in addition to all those orchestral players, we had probably the greatest rhythm section in the world on that film. Every single rhythm player was the best of the best from 
the Los Angeles team of, of just the most brilliant record kind of guys that you can get. So they were all in there. And interestingly, Dennis Sands decided to record everything pretty much at the same time, which is unusual for that kind of a score. And I don't know how any other engineer besides Dennis could have done that because he got the separation we needed between all the rhythm guys and the orchestra. And at the same time, he got a wonderful orchestral sound. Additionally, we had several choirs involved in that score. We had a, like an African choir, and then we had more of a conventional mixed choir. So a lot of resources, which made it absolutely a blast to work on. And that was another film where I had ample time to write music. So it was a pleasure. Jim Carrey came to some of the sessions. He's a real music fan. He loved the music we were doing for uh, Ace Ventura. And he brought this certain energy to some of the recording sessions. Because as you know, with Jim Carrey, there's never gonna be a dull moment. And when he, when he would come out onto the stage with the musicians, it, it was pretty exciting stuff. So I've got great memories of that project. And uh, when it comes on cable these days, as it often does, I, I often get a kick out of watching a few scenes and remembering the pleasure I had creating that score, which, which was really exciting and fun to work on.
that was music from the 1995 adventure comedy sequel Ace Ventura When Nature Calls, directed by Steve Alderkirk and starring Jim Carrey, Ian McNeese and Simon Callow, with original score composed and conducted by my guest today, Robert Falk. Now Robert, one of your more recent scores was for the 2011 film There Be Dragons, which was directed by Roland Joffe. And if I remember, this, this was a replacement score for one originally composed by Stephen Warbeck. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Um, Roland Joffe is one of my favorite directors. So when a producer friend of mine who was working with Roland um, introduced me to Roland, I was ecstatic. I was so thrilled. And the circumstances were that Roland had finished There Be Dragons with uh, many producers involved, um, each of them very uh, controlling in a way or very opinionated. And they had pushed Roland in certain directions where I think the, the finished film originally was not really what he would consider to be exactly what he was going for. So he had decided he wanted to do a updated version, sort of a director's cut of There Be Dragons. And when I was introduced to him, I had a chance to look at it. And he said to me, look, I, I want a much more epic, very thematic, very emotional, and at times adventurous score. And, and as you know, the, the film deals with very dramatic elements, the Spanish um, wartime situation. Catholicism is a big theme in the film. There are elements of history that play a role in the film. And as well as being, you know, a war movie with action elements. So you've got a lot of really challenging, but also inspiring things to work on there. So I, I set about writing a bunch of themes for Roland and we approved together the ones that, that he was happiest with. And I, I did have quite a bit of time um, to work on the project. And we recorded the score here in Seattle where they have a beautiful church up there. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the recordings that have come out of there, the church up in Seattle and members of the Seattle Symphony Orchestra. And I had a wonderful choir up there. I, I was so amazed at just how great the choir was in Seattle that we, we had on hand. So it was, a, it was a great project to work on. Uh, Roland was also busy on another film at the time. So he was involved, but in many occasions, we were speaking via internet. Now, I was getting feedback playing music for him just the way we are now. And one of the producers who, who was the person that introduced me to Roland, it became his task to physically be present with us um, in Seattle. And Roland was uh, on a big screen over in the corner, sort of listening in uh, as much as he had time to do. So it turned out to be a really fun and exciting score. And then to make it better, we had a, a nice soundtrack CD come out of it, thanks to uh, Bob Townsend and uh, Varez Saraband at the time. And I, I was really excited that we had, we had a chance for that CD to come out as well. So 
one of my favorite movies in, in more recent years and with one of my favorite directors of all time. So it was exciting. It was a real pleasure.
music from the 2011 Spanish Civil War drama There Be Dragons, directed by Roland Joffe and starring Charlie Cox, Res Bentley and Dog Ray Scott with original music performed by the Northwest Symphonia and composed by Robert Falk. Now Robert, you have recorded a fair number of your scores outside of Hollywood. What do you feel are the benefits of recording in Hollywood and outside of Hollywood? Well, recording in Hollywood, you're going to get the very best orchestras in the world, uh, along with London. I put them on the same level. They're different, but in terms of quality, you're getting the same quality. You're getting an A-plus recording if you're in London, and you're getting an A-plus recording if you're in Hollywood. They're different because... The orchestras in Los Angeles, they're not one orchestra. Whereas if you're, if you're recording in London, you can hire the London Symphony Orchestra or the London Philharmonia, or back in the day, the National Philharmonic. Orchestras where the, the same players are pretty much playing together all the time. There may be some people traded in and out depending on availability. It's an orchestra that's played together so much that there's a certain sound. Whereas in in Los Angeles, it's not quite the same. You you might get many different new players depending on the film you're doing, depending on the time of year, depending on how busy things are in town. Of course, when I record here, I live here. So no traveling, that's a bonus. Although I love to travel, so it's exciting to go and record in Berlin or Dublin or in London or in Rome or in Moscow. I've I've recorded in most film centers throughout Europe and it's always fun and exciting to travel. And it's fun and exciting to be with people from different countries and cultures. So I I always look forward to that. So it's great no matter where you're working, as long as the quality is of a really high level. It's fun and it's exciting, but that's my feeling about working here locally or about traveling. Now, away from the scoring stage, you've also composed numerous concert works in your career. Tell us about the ballet you composed entitled To Dream of Roses, which was composed for the Osaka World Fair and recorded by the London Symphony Orchestra. Well, that was a very unusual project because the, the original ballet created by and for uh, American Ballet Theater, which is our preeminent ballet company in the United States. That project had been finished and shot as a, in a very unusual medium, an IMAX film medium, but also using very high definition technologies that existed in, in that particular year. 
by a really creative director named Keith Melton. So he had created this ballet and used existing recordings of classical music and maybe a little bit of film music, but mostly classical and a lot of ballet music so that the dancers had a, a template to dance to and to give the look and the feel of a, of a true ballet. So the big challenge for me was I had to replace all of that music with a, an original score and match all of the movements of the dancers and make it appear as though they were dancing to my music. So that was not easy. And, you know, there were no click tracks. It was all free-timed recordings that they obtained to use as a guide for the project. So I had to create guide tracks, guide click tracks, which were freely timed to make certain that every single gesture on screen made it appear as though they were dancing to the score that I created. Now, in some cases, there are sections of that score which are very derivative, and you can hear it right away. For example, the Stravinsky section, the Debussy section. There's some Scarlatti moments. There are all kinds of moments that I'm sure when you're listening to, the, to my score, you're, you're going, oh, wow, you know, this is something from this genre, from that genre. It's very similar to that composer. In a way, it was unavoidable because of the dancing and because of how closely knit all the elements were to be heavily influenced by the, the temporary track. So that, that was always going to be part of the project. And yet, I feel it's, it's got a lot of my signatures included. Of course, as a composer, it's always going to filter through your DNA, your creative instincts. And so I, I've, I've got to consider that it is my score, but it's my score influenced by a lot of great composers from the past. It was a really fun and exciting project. We went to London. I got the pleasure of conducting the LSO, which, which I've recorded with several times. I love that orchestra, love Abbey Road. And the extra bonus was making several trips to uh, Tokyo and also out to the World's Fair and getting steeped in the Japanese culture. So that was a fun and exciting aspect to it. The other unique thing was at the World's Fair, they constructed an entire theater just for this one project, if you can imagine. Mm. And I, I was told that because it was backed by Sumitomo Bank, the entire project, I was told that the theater was constructed uh, at the time on a budget of about $30 million, if you can imagine. It was such a large and unique facility with the greatest audio I've ever heard. The audio was very similar to the audio that we have today. There were speakers in, in every part of the room. So when we mixed the LSO recording, we made sure there was plenty of close miking as well as the sound of Abbey Road so that they could feature certain elements in different parts of this theater. 
to coincide with what you were seeing on screen. Really a fun and exciting project.
That was a suite of music from the ballet To Dream of Roses, composed for the Osaka World's Fair and performed by the London Symphony Orchestra with music composed and conducted by Robert Falk. Now, Robert, who are your musical influences? Well, that's a, that's a big question. I mean, for me, influences are, in my case, it's more about what you listen to. Of course, when I was at Juilliard for 10 years, I did a lot of studying and a lot of score studying. And that's mostly of the giants from the classical music world, classical period, romantic period, early, let's say up into early, early 20th century. Most of my studying, uh, my formal studying of scores took place during that time. So all of the usual names going back to Baroque period, let's say, starting with Bach, going on to Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, Schubert, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, my grandfather tells me that we're related to Franz Schubert. And he once showed me a family tree that would prove that point. So I've always had a particular liking for Schubert. But all those composers, the later on period, let's say Berlioz, Chopin, Wagner, Bruckner, Strauss, the Russians, Tchaikovsky, Rimsky-Korsakov were some of my favorites, Prokofiev. And then film music-wise, the big names that you would expect, you know, John Williams, probably my number one, Jerry Goldsmith, right there standing beside him. It was, so it was ironic that those would be the first two composers of film that I ever met. When I came out here, I think I arrived here when I was just turning 30. And to meet John and Jerry on the same day through Lionel Newman, that was a pretty big dream as one of the very first things you do upon arriving in Los Angeles. So those two, along with my friend, John Barry, was so helpful to me. I also loved Elmer. Uh, I would have lunch with Elmer once in a while. And he was, I think he was an influence on me. And other than that, Morricone, Maurice Jarre, I knew very well. 
I used to go visit Maurice when he lived up in, in the hills of Beverly Hills. And later on, he was out in Malibu. I'd go visit Maurice out there. The people that are still writing today, I, I love James Newton Howard, Tommy Newman. I'm a big fan of Dave Grusin. I admire very much Hans Zimmer. He reinvented the way films are scored. As you know, he was a, an apprentice to Stanley Myers. And Hans did a lot of work with, in the commercial industry before he ever, ever got involved with film music. And when he first came out here, a lot of we composers, we didn't really understand right away that Hans would literally reinvent the way films are scored. He's been so prolific and done so many films, and he's written a lot of films that I admire. So I'd have to say that he goes on the list as well. So it's quite a long list of people that somehow I think have probably had some kind of influence on me. Do you feel that film music should be both functional in context, but also good music that can stand on its own? You know, I, I like that idea. I, th I, think, I think it should stand on its own. But that also is tied to the discussion about why isn't there more melodic, more thematic film music being written in today's world as it has been in the past. So those are two related conversations. And I think if you're going to go to a concert and listen to film music, you're going to be a lot more rewarded if there's strong thematic content, strong melodies, strong motifs, strong materials, like a basis for which the music is going to explore things that are well-defined and memorable. I think it's like very important. And I always like it when film scores sound well and do well and are rewarding to listen to in a concert environment. Many great scores have been written in recent years that don't follow those guidelines. They are textural, are generated from primarily rhythmic percussion, textural, tonal, harmonic, and, and including sound designed elements. And in their own way, very functional and very sometimes very exciting and are a big part of movie making. But if you go hear some of those scores in a concert, probably would be less rewarding, in my opinion, for me as a listener. Now, when composing a score, do you write for yourself or is the only goal to write what the film demands of you? I'm writing for both. Of course, you, you must write for the film. That's what you've been hired to do. That's what the director expects you to do. And the final product has to support the film in every way. And I certainly do that. The reward of writing that music is the pleasure of your, your own creative energies coming to life. And so just by natural association with, with the sounds, with the harmonies, the melodies, the themes, the rhythms, the arrangements, the orchestrations, the art that you're creating, it's flowing out of you and you're, the reward of creating that music, it's been your chosen mission in life, so to speak. So for me, I, I would say it's equally important. 
And that was some exclusive music supplied, especially for this show, from the 1999 thriller You're Dead, directed by Andy Hurst and starring John Hurt, Claire Skinner and Reese Fans, with original score composed, conducted and supplied by my guest today, Robert Folk. And thank you very much for supplying this exclusive material for the show. Now, Robert... Do you feel your music has been given the respect it deserves from the film industry? Uh, my own, my own music. Um, I think it's very well respected. I, I get a lot of interplay with film music lovers all over the world every day. So I know that a lot of people admire what I've done and, and what I continue to do. Um, that doesn't necessarily translate to the film industry and their interest in inviting you on to this or that project necessarily. That's a completely different situation. Perhaps I um, would hope that filmmakers, particularly young filmmakers, who are the, the people that hire today for the most part, that they would in turn embrace my music or or even the music of other composers who are let's say arbitrarily i'll pick a number over the age of 60. my experience has been that if you're not a gigantic icon let's say on the lines of a john williams a jerry goldsmith a john barry and elmer bernstein that level of composer if you're not that iconic a person and you're, you're still working at, let's say, the age of 60 or so, the process seems to be that it's going to be harder and harder to be the chosen one because there's so many young filmmakers, so many new filmmakers, and as you know, thousands and thousands of new composers entering the field every year mostly as a product of technology. For many years, I would say at about 25 years, arbitrarily, I would say, just picking a rough number, I would say I was one of a hundred people that would do most of the important work. But that changed very dramatically starting, let's say around 2005. To the, uh, into 2010, those years, when technology became such a force that it enabled almost anyone with access to technology to call themselves a film composer and begin to try and pursue a film music writing career. And this created a marketplace with thousands and thousands of new names. Now, of course, not all of them have gotten their foot in the door, as the expression goes. But they're there. They're out there in the consciousness. They're available. They can deliver that product that's become acceptable in the film scoring world. And that has made it ever the more challenging for composers who are long time established to stay as busy as they always have been. And that filters up the, the chain to even A-level composers. You'll notice that even 
with the exception of the top 10 or 15 people, when you keep coming down the roster, even many, many A-level composers are doing fewer films every year than they were doing 10 or 15 years ago. So it's an ever-challenging field. And your original question, uh, has my music been recognized and appreciated as much as I would want it to be? The answer is yes, it has, but uh, staying busy gets, stays challenging. Looking back at your career, would you wish to have worked on higher profile projects? I think every composer would say yes. That's certainly something we all aspire to. And when you miss GoldenEye or you miss City Slickers, or I probably got about a half a dozen of those stories, any one of those films could have changed how many big A-level films I would be offered. So, you know, I think every composer wants to do the highest level projects. And we all do the best that we can. That's, that's the only way that I could answer that question. Now, which score, which you have composed to date, is, in your opinion, your best work? Um, it's, it's hard to pick, but I can tell you what my favorite score is. My favorite score is to the, the Richard Gere film, Miles From Home. That's my favorite score. That's another uh, John Richards recording that we did at, at the old uh, CBS stage on Radford over here in, in Hollywood, or actually over the hill on the valley side. And I love John's sound, and he got an incredible rich sound on that recording. I really love it. One of my favorite recordings. But it's just, you know what it is? It's my, I think it's my favorite genre is the dark, dramatic film with romantic overtones. I would say that if somebody said to me, look, what are the kinds of films that you'd like to work on all day long? That would be the answer. And I think the reason for that is uh, it gives you a chance to, for great melodic writing. It gives you a chance to put on display your deepest emotions. And you're not confined to spending all of your time writing action sequences. So it gives you time to work on very deep, sometimes dark, very emotional, very expressive, and very meaningful music. And I, I guess if I had done a half a dozen of those in the beginning of my career, at a time when I really didn't know anything about film music or about how to develop a career, I guess if I had done a number of those, maybe I would have spent more time doing those kind of movies.
and that was music from the 1988 action crime drama Miles from Home, directed by Gary Sinise and starring Richard Gere, Kevin Anderson, Penelope Ann Miller and Brian Dennehy, with original score composed and conducted by my guest today, Robert Falk. Now, Robert, you have worked with a wide variety of directors in your career. Which of them have you had the most satisfying collaborative experience? Well, that's, um, I guess it would have to be working with Steve Odekirk, who I did Ace Ventura with. I also did a film at Disney with him called um, Nothing to Lose, which starred uh, Tim Robbins. Working with Odekirk maybe was my most rewarding time because I did four projects with him. And he just loved film music. He still loves film music and was a very musical person, understood what music does, would challenge you to do your best. He's a kind of director where when you would do a scene, even if he loved it, he would always say, how can we enhance this scene? How can we take it one step further? So you knew that when you did a film with Steve, he was going to expect your best and he knew how to to get your best. And he knew how to get what he wanted, what he needed. And at the same time, creating an environment where you were going to deliver something you were really proud of. And he was super fun. He started his career as a stand-up comic and and a touring stand-up comic. He would go from city to, to town making almost no money being a stand-up comic until the day that he met Jim Carrey. And I think he met him at one of the comedy clubs here in LA. And they struck up a conversation enough so that they got to know each other and Jim asked him to start writing on projects that Jim had interest in. And one of those projects became Ace Ventura. And that's how Steve went from being a guy that lived in a tiny little one-room apartment in Hollywood to a guy that owns half of La Jolla, California, a beautiful upscale beachside community about an hour and a half south of here, where Steve has a giant studio, a giant estate that he lives in and, and works in down there. And when I was working on films with him, he hasn't directed in a long time now, but when I was working on these films with him, we would drive down to La Jolla usually once or twice a week for the duration of whatever project it was we were doing. Another film that I did with him was Kung Pao Enter the Fist. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a 20th Century Fox film where Steve wanted to get these old fight movies, these old Asian action karate movies and whatnot, and replace all the sound and the music and all the dialogue, everything. Kind of a very fun concept. And I think at the time, maybe he was one of of the first to do that, especially on a studio film level, like uh, Kung Pao was was a Fox movie. So he'd be the guy, to answer your question, he'd be the director that it was the most fun and interesting and, and very rewarding to work with.
And that was music from the 2002 action comedy Kong Pao Enter the Fist, written and directed by Steve Aldekert and starring Steve Aldekert, with original score composed and conducted by Robert Falk. Now, Robert, what are you working on at present that you can tell us about? Well, you know, pandemic year has been slow, I'll say. Most of my time, I've been working on a, a project which is very early on called Planet X, which is a feature film in the genre of Star Wars. It's a film that I'm also a producer on, so I'm helping to assemble all of the team. The film's being financed mostly out of Europe, and the creator is a British producer and conceptual artist is really the best term I can use for him by the name of Tim Burke. And so musically, I'm just starting to work on some themes, but really based on the script because we haven't shot no footage yet. Right now, every department is working like from the very beginning, just in a lot of the design work and the character work, the script itself, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of a movie, that's been occupying most of my time right now. During the pandemic, I'm doing also a lot of songwriting. And I'm working with my significant other. Her name is Alex Kupchik, K-U-P-C-I-K. She's Australian and Czech, her family roots. But we live together here in Beverly Hills area. And we decided because Hollywood is mostly shut down, like I can see Fox Studios from my windows here, and there's nobody driving in or out of those gates virtually nobody it's it's really things are really locked down and they have been since march 13th of last year so we're we're going to be at a year pretty soon so during that time we decided we would focus on a lot of songwriting which is a passion of mine i've i've written maybe 20 or 30 songs for various films over the years and my start in music when i was a rocker back in the day working out of boston I probably wrote maybe a hundred songs for various rock bands that I was involved in. So that was actually my first creative instinct. And maybe that's why I'm more of a thematic and melodic film composer, because I started where melody is absolutely premier, and that's in songwriting. So for the last year, almost year, we've been focusing on writing a group of songs with the intent of, once we have a certain number, our intent is to approach one of the more modern publishing songwriter-friendly groups, like you might have been reading about a group called Hypgenosis which is one of the founding members is Nile Rogers. They're a company which last year did, I believe about a hundred million dollars net profits for a company that's only four years old. And what they're doing is buying a lot of songwriting catalogs. They recently bought a, an interest in the Neil Young catalog and a number of other very big artists. If you go to their Wikipedia, Hypgenosis, uh, you, you can read all about it. So we're going to take our songs and see if we can set up a publishing arrangement with one of these newer companies on a per fee, sort per song kind of basis. 
to have an interest in our material. And so that's been very gratifying and a great way to spend my musical time during a very highly restricted year, 2020. Now, my final question. When you reach the end of your career, how would you like to be remembered by film music fans? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I hope I'll be remembered as being a film composer who had a very strong musical background, who was well-trained in, in all disciplines, who was influenced by a lot of great composers from the past and the present, and who focused on really memorable themes and melodic content, who focused on writing film music that would be rewarding, not only for the, its interaction with the film, but also in the concert environment. And, um, and someone that was very eclectic, was able to work in virtually any genre and deliver top material. I guess that's it. Dr. Robert Falk, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us. I do hope you enjoyed both parts of my interview with Dr. Robert Falk. I leave you with more of the exciting film music composed by Robert Falk. Two cues from his score from the 1996 science fiction adventure sequel, Lawnmower Man 2 Beyond Cyberspace. Directed by Firehead Man and starring Patrick Bergen and Matt Fuhrer. With the music performed by the Symphonia of London Orchestra. My thanks again to Dr. Robert Falk for joining us. And until we meet again, from me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>